The goal of a cancer cell is to be the strongest that it can be. And so that signal says, let's go out of the colon, let's go other places, and let's take over. Think about it like an army almost. That's the goal of a cancer cell is to take over someone's normal biologic functions. This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and today our guest is Dave Cohn, the Chief Medical Officer of the James. Dave is an expert on the ins and outs and the science of cancer and cancer treatment and a perfect guest for today's topic, which I'm calling Everything You Need to Know About Cancer or Cancer 101, The Basics. I'm going to ask Dave a series of questions, and we're going to go over a lot of ground, and Dave will explain a lot of cancer information in a way that's going to be easy for everyone to understand. Welcome back to the podcast, Dave. This is your fifth time on the podcast, and I'm I'm sorry to put so much pressure on you to answer all these questions in, in such a quick manner, but I think you can handle that. Uh, Steve, it's, I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me back for a fifth time. I, I guess if you've invited me back, I've not been fired yet, so okay. <laughs> hopefully we're doing something right together. This is fun. I'm going to give you a promotion. You're now the chief medical officer for this podcast. <laughs> okay, are you ready? Let's go. So let's start off with the most basic of all questions. What is cancer and what are cancer cells? Perfect start. So, you know, I would think about cancer as being an abnormal change to cells. We are all made up of cells in our body. Sometimes there's a trigger that happens that causes a cell to grow abnormally. And when things happen in a way where they continue to proliferate or grow, then eventually it turns into a cancer. And so a cancer is an abnormal growth of tissue or cells that can cause all the things that we know about of things that can spread and, unfortunately, things that can cause patient harm and ultimately death. Well, that sort of leads into my second question. You sort of started to answer that, which is why are these cancer cells, which are growing in our body, why are they harmful? How do they, they cause illness and death? So there's a variety of ways as to why cancer cells are bad for the body. Number one, they can replace normal cells. The classic example is within the bone marrow. So bone marrow is the inside of our bones. And as cancer cells grow as a leukemia, sometimes it forces out those normal cells, and then you just have a bunch of abnormal cells that are the cancer cells inside of there. The other reason why is that the actual mass of a group of cancer cells can cause problems. The tumor. The tumor. That's exactly right. And so I think importantly, a tumor is a mass, a growth is a mass, um, cancer can be a mass as well. And when this happens, it can press on things. It can cause blockage of the intestines or blockage of other parts of our bodies that can actually cause discomfort. Now, we hear the word metastasize a lot, that the cancer is a later stage and it's metastasized. So what does that mean? Very simply, metastasize means it's spread. And so if cancer starts somewhere and goes somewhere else, that means that it's metastasized. And so from the standpoint, if somebody started with a colon cancer that spread to the liver, that's called a metastasized colon cancer. It is not considered a liver cancer because that would mean that it would have started in the liver. Okay. So even if if you have colon cancer and it spreads to several different organs, no matter where it is, it's colon cancer. That's exactly right. How do these these cancer cells like break away from the colon and spread to the liver and and to other organs? So this is where we get into a lot of biology. And so there's a lot of uncertainty about how that exactly happens, but it seems that there are triggers or something that occurs genetically or through some chemical that's secreted by the cancer of the body that says to the primary cancer, it's time to move out. Let's move out of here and let's spread. If you think about it from the 
goal of a cancer cell is to be the strongest that it can be. And so that signal says, let's go out of the colon, let's go other places, and let's take over. Think about it like an army almost. That's the goal of a cancer cell is to take over someone's normal biologic functions. So they're the most aggressive cells in your body, and they're going to take on and defeat other cells. That's exactly right. Are there certain places that that cancer is more likely to spread to certain organs or areas of the body? So this is a really interesting question because it's almost the mystery of that biology question of the biology. Different cancers like to go to different places. And so you can kind of go through it and say that if there's a breast cancer, very often breast cancer can go to the bone, whereas colon cancer goes to the liver. And colon cancer doesn't commonly go to the bone. And breast cancer doesn't usually go to the liver. So we don't exactly know why that is, but that gets back to that signaling of the cancer cells to spread somewhere. It's different within those two separate types of cancer. Boy, and that's another example of how each cancer, even though they're they're cancer, are so different. And and hard more and I'm guessing make them harder to treat and come up with cures for. But it also provides a really great opportunity if you start to understand that biology, you can take advantage of it because then you can start thinking of specific types of treatments that target those behaviors of those cancers. Oh, so a colon cancer that's spread to other organs, you don't you treat it as colon cancer with the specific immunotherapy or precision cancer medicine for developed for colon cancer. That's correct. So you always get have to go back to that primary disease. But again, very often we look to the genetics of the cancer, and I'm sure we'll talk about that today, where you might look at that even if it's a colon cancer or a breast cancer, if there's something that's changed within those cancers that's the same, you might use a, the same exact treatment, even though they're different cancers. Okay. And you're right. We are going to get to that. That's on, on my list here. Uh, but first, let's talk about the stages of cancer. We hear people say, I have stage two cancer. I have stage three or four cancer. What are each of the stages? So this gets back to that metastasized question. Um, cancer is staged from uh, starting in the organ, stage one, until it's spread widely through the body, stage four. And you can think about this almost like a map. So If you start at a city and you're trying to get to another city, when you start in that city, that's stage one. When you've gotten to your destination, the furthest part away, that's stage four. Stage two and stage three are the intervening steps where it might be close to your origin. And then stage three is a little further away, but not to your destination. And stage four is once you've gotten there. So the stages are important because that might change the way that patients are treated. And very importantly, that's also what predicts the most likely outcome for the patient as well. Okay. Um, We hear the term genetic mutation a lot in terms of the cause of someone's cancer. What is a genetic mutation? So this is where that piece gets again about why do things happen? Why do cancers grow and how do you treat them? Everybody is made up of genes, meaning our normal bodies are made up of, uh, of DNA. DNA is what makes up genes. And typically in somebody that is walking around without cancer, we may have normal genes that are not broken. When cancers begin developing, sometimes that signal is that there's a mutation or a change in that normal DNA. You can think about it that we're all made up of building blocks. And if a few of those building blocks get taken out, then something may begin crumbling. And so it's that example of our DNA as our building blocks. And if there are changes from normal to abnormal, that's when cancer may start. And that's when cancers begin growing. You asked about the specific examples. There are a couple main examples that we think about of genetic mutations that lead to cancer. 
One of them is called a BRCA mutation. That BRCA mutation leads to a variety of cancers in women like breast and ovarian cancer. BRCA stands for breast cancer. Breast cancer. That's exactly right. A breast cancer associated gene. And in men and women also, you can get pancreatic cancer and in men, prostate cancer as a result of BRCA mutations. That's a specific mutation that's been identified. That's correct. Okay. And very often, these are hereditary mutations, meaning Uh, that... That was my next question. What is a hereditary uh, or an inherited genetic mutation? Yeah. So in certain families, somebody is born with a genetic mutation, meaning that they don't acquire it to cause a cancer, but they're born with it, which means... From one of their parents. That's correct. We know that when somebody is born with this genetic mutation they are at higher risk for developing those specific cancers that are associated with that BRCA mutation, for example. So are there any other ways cancer can occur? I know we talk about, we hear about smoking and exposure to the sun, things like that. So those are the most common ways that cancer can be induced. And you can think about it that if we have normal DNA, normal genes, some type of an environmental exposure can happen, and that might lead to those crumbling of those building blocks. So smoking is one thing that causes DNA damage. Sun exposure also causes DNA damage. Smoking causes lung cancer. Sun exposure can cause skin cancers. But there's a variety of other factors as well. And the one that we're learning more about now than ever has been obesity. So obesity changes a lot of our biologic functions that also predispose patients to cancer. Some other guests on the show have talked about that, and the word in, inflammation comes up, that it, it, with added weight, there's more inflammation in the body, and, they, and there's more evidence that this is connected to these uh, mutations that cause cancer? That's spot on. So we believe that the, inf- the inflammatory milieu or the environment of inflammation because of obesity can lead to those genetic changes that predispose somebody to cancer. The other thing is that Increased weight also increases general amount of estrogen, which is a hormone that in our own bodies can contribute to cancer. And that's the other mechanism through estrogen and inflammation that cancers can develop. And is estrogen in men and women? Estrogen is in men and women. Because I think there's perhaps a misconception that that's uh, related to women and breast cancer. That's correct. So the ovaries make estrogen in women. um, But the other place that estrogen is derived from is that men and women also both make testosterone, which is the male hormone, but it's converted in our fat cells to estrogen. And that's why obesity leads to increased relative rates of estrogen in our population. Wow, that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that. So what are the, the most common forms of cancer in this, in this country? So it's estimated that more than 1.7 million U.S. individuals will get cancer in any given year. And unfortunately, about 600,000 of our U.S. population die every year of cancer. And when you think about how to, um, what, what are the most common types, breast cancer um, in women predominantly, lung cancer in both men and women, prostate cancer in men. And if you think about that, about you know, 270,000 women uh, develop breast cancer a year, and about 230,000 men and women develop lung cancer every year, and about 175,000 men get prostate cancer a year. So that's a really large burden of that overall cancer risk. Then from there, it's about 150,000 men and women get colorectal cancer this year, cancer of the colon and or rectum. And then about another 100,000 get melanoma. So those are those really aggressive skin cancers as well. I I think, and I have a little bit of confusion with this, the difference between skin cancer and melanoma. How how are they different? 
So skin cancer is the broad topic that includes melanoma, as well as the other two main types of skin cancer, which are called basal cell cancer and squamous cell cancer. The basal cells and the squamous cells are other parts of the normal skin that can turn cancerous as well. So the bigger term is skin cancer, of which melanoma is one type, and the other two types I just mentioned are also types of skin cancers. Are all those types um, types of cancer in which it can metastasize and, and spread? Absolutely. Any of those three types can metastasize and spread, but it seems that melanoma is the most common form of skin cancer to metastasize and spread and therefore the most aggressive. And, and I think, again, there might be a little misconception with people that when they say skin cancer, they think it's just on that piece of skin and you remove that and, and, and hopefully you're cured and they don't understand that it can metastasize and, and often does. And I think the reason for that is that the most common type of skin cancer are the non-melanoma skin cancers, which very commonly do not spread and can be removed just in the area of skin and that leads to cure. But given the fact that the melanomas, the aggressive ones, those can invade more deeply into the skin and they can spread as well. Okay, that was great. And that was a lot of questions, but we're only about halfway done. So we're going to take a a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to start uh, learning about and I have some questions about cancer treatment. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At The James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. We're back with Dave Cohn, the chief medical officer of the James, and we're going over a lot of different areas of cancer. And Dave, are you ready? I'm ready. All right. We're going to now delve into uh, treatment. And this is a a rather long and complicated uh, discussion because the treatment has just advanced so far in, in the past 20, 30 years. But let's see if we can simplify it and help explain it to people. So let's start with surgery, which from what you told me before in a previous podcast goes back hundreds of years and was the very first known treatment for cancer. Yeah. And so I think the surgery has also progressed at an amazing rate over this period of time as well. I think the general principle of surgery is the removal of of cancer, basically taking it out of somebody's body. That can be done as a biopsy. That's a type of a surgery. Or it can be actually making an incision, taking that entire tumor out, and then looking under the microscope at it. The goal of surgery typically is to remove all of the cancer. Sometimes that's curative in and of itself. Sometimes that's the beginning of treatment where surgery gets out most of it, but there's still additional treatment that's required down the line. Which we're going to get to in a second. Now, you are a surgeon. I am. When you, uh, and a gynecologic surgeon, when you are operating on someone, can you see cancer cells? Do they look different than regular cells? They do. And so the way that I describe it to patients is that I'm looking for something that's not normal. And as simple as that sounds, it's true. I know what normal looks like. And so a cancer cell or a cancer tumor looks like a group of cells or a lump or something that's in a place that typically shouldn't be there. And it's relatively easy to see cancer cells when it's inside of the abdominal cavity. Sometimes cancer cells are deep within the liver, and you might need an ultrasound or other types of x-rays to help define that. Sometimes they're in the lymph nodes, which are things that we have throughout our bodies that filter cancer. 
and you might have to use x-rays to guide where that lymph node is to find the large one to take it out as well. Now, do they, other than being where they shouldn't, do they look different? Are they different color or consistency? I'd say every cancer is different, but typically there's a lot of extra blood vessels in cancer, and that's a general rule. So they're a lot of times more red than the rest of the surrounding tissues. That's a pretty good clue to where cancer is. Oh, I hadn't thought of that, but do these extra blood vessels enable them to grow faster than normal cells? They do, and we're going to probably talk about targeted therapies later, and we'll get back to blood vessels at that point. Okay, but the next step in cancer treatment is radiation therapy, which dates back Boy, probably it's about 1900 or the early 1900s, right? Absolutely, yep. So radiation therapy is the principle of using x-rays to kill cancer cells. And I guess I would describe it this way, is that if you can take x-rays at a certain intensity, you can do damage directly to the cancer DNA, or you can actually interact with normal things that are around cancer, for example, oxygen and water, that set up a chemical reaction that damage that DNA. So there's two different ways that cancer DNA gets damaged by radiation. But the reason why that's important is that radiation affects a general area, meaning if you apply radiation to to a tumor in an arm, that's the only area where that treatment is applied to the where the tumor is or was, plus those surrounding tissues that you have to radiate to make sure you're killing off all of the cancer cells that could be there. Now, we just had Dr. Chakravarti on the podcast who talked about He's, he's the head of the radiation oncology division here. He talked about exactly what you said. And then the next big step forward is proton radiation treatment. Well, I'm glad that you had Dr. Chakavarti talking about protons because he is certainly one of the experts. But I guess in, in simple terms, um, r- proton therapy is using really high intensity radiation therapy that's able to be delivered to a much more narrow area. So a smaller location can be targeted that has a lot more potential damage to the surrounding tissues. Yeah. One of the things he mentioned, which I found fascinating is with proton radiation, um, it stops the, the beam stops at the tumor, whereas opposed to the, uh, more traditional photon radiation, it goes through the body. And like you said, can damage the cells around it. But with the new proton, it, I don't know how, but they somehow, it somehow stops at the, at the tumor and doesn't go through the body. Right. And so that's the general reason why the side effects of proton therapy in many patients can be substantially less than the traditional photon radiation therapy. And so that's really important, for example, you know, in um, cancers from the skull base, a very narrow area at where your brain and your neck meet each other, and especially in pediatric cases. So this is a very important application for our pediatric cancer group um, where the obviously body parts are smaller. And so you have to be very specific to not damage surrounding organs, which is going to decrease the chance of having lifelong complications. And including uh, a recurrence of cancer. Absolutely. Okay. So even all these years later, more than 100 years later, radiation and particularly the new photon, proton radiation is still an important part of cancer treatment. Yeah, there are many, many patients who end up getting combination treatment that includes radiation therapy as well. So it's a key piece. And I would say that there's a lot of concern about radiation and, and burning, but modern radiation techniques are really, really high quality, minimizing side effects like we talked about, and is a very important part of our treatment scheme. So in the last 20, 30, 40 years, new uh, new new techniques have been developed. Um, let's start with chemotherapy. 
chemotherapy has certainly progressed over time as well. You can think about chemotherapy as being any type of treatment that is going to be applied throughout the body, um, either with an oral medication or an intravenous medication as well, an so IV oral, medication. oral will be a, a pill. Correct. And intravenous is what Something it is. in the vein, yeah. exactly. Okay. A liquid that goes into the vein that can kill off cancer cells that are anywhere in the body. And the reason why or the, how it does that is we talked about how cancer cells grow faster and they cause those tumors to grow. So things that grow quickly are killed off preferentially by chemotherapy. The reason why that's important is that there's other very fast-growing cells in the body as well, and hair follicles are one of them, and the inside of the gastrointestinal tract is another one. So common side effects of chemotherapy of hair loss, sometimes nausea as well, are because the fast-growing normal cells can also be damaged by chemotherapy, as well as can the standard chemotherapy drugs as well. Oh, so that's interesting. I had heard about the hair hair follicles are faster growing cells, and that's why you lose your hair. But I didn't know why nausea is is a common side effect. But you just explained that. There's another reason why nausea can happen as well. Chemotherapy also acts centrally on the brain, and the brain controls a lot of our sense of nausea. So it kind of works by both ways. But the other reason why chemotherapy causes side effects is because the inside of the bone, the bone marrow, which makes our normal cells also are very fast growing. And that's why patients have sometimes lower blood counts that may require blood transfusion or even shots to keep their infection-fighting white blood cells white blood cells higher during chemotherapy to minimize the risk of infection. Okay, now, and from what I understand, while chemotherapy was a next step forward after surgery and radiation, it wasn't the most exact and, and precise type of medicine. And, it, and like you just mentioned, there are some pretty serious side effects. So even, and it is continuing to evolve, but still there's some other steps that have, have come since that are even more precise. And the two that I hear about a lot are targeted or precision cancer treatment. And what are they? And are they the same thing or are they slightly different? I would say that precision therapy as well as targeted therapies are the same exact category of drugs. And so as you mentioned, chemotherapy in general can kill any of the cells in the body. Targeted therapies or precision therapies are honed in on a specific area that should be killed and sparing the normal tissues that are around it. And I'll give you an example. We talked earlier about genetics. Sometimes cancers develop a genetic change. And if we know that there's a drug that can target that genetic change, that's the drug that you should get. So there are certain drugs. We talked about the BRCA gene mutations. So for women who have breast cancer or ovarian cancer, there are specific targeted therapies that act more favorably when somebody has a BRCA mutation. And so that's why it's called a targeted or the precision is minimizing side effects, maximizing outcome. And are there other targets that these, these drugs can find? Well, we alluded to that in the first half. So the blood vessel drug. So there are certain drugs that actually target what causes blood vessel growth. And so this is another form of a targeted therapy called an antibody, where that antibody actually blocks the stimulator of blood vessel growth, which will decrease some of the ability for cancer cells to access the blood vessels, number one, or it could kill off cancer cells because it decreases the blood flow to cancer cells. And that could actually cause cancer cell death because it's starved of its blood supply. Okay. So this leads me to immunotherapy. And and that, this is where I'm a little confused. Is, is immunotherapy different than targeted or precision therapy? 
I would say that it is targeting the immune system and it's precise in its approach, but it's different than what we talked about with it targeting a gene. So this is more of targeting the general environment of the cancer. And so I would describe immunotherapy as a way to harness the body's native immune system to fight off its own cancer. So instead of the drug doing it, the drug uh, revs up the immune system to do it. That's correct. So if you think about it, we all have immune systems which fight off viruses if we get them. Typically, if a virus, a foreign body is within us, our immune systems rev up. That's why we might get a fever. That's why we might feel poorly because that's our body's response to the virus to try to fight it off. And so cancer cells should be foreign because there's all these genetic changes that are different than us, uh, Okay. yet our body doesn't recognize cancer as foreign. So the, immunotherapy- The cancer cells trick the body into not recognizing it as foreign. That's correct. So the cancer cells hide from the body's immune system. So one of the ways that these immunotherapies work is they actually make those cancer cells exposed to the body's immune system so the immune system can kill off the cancer cells. Wow. Okay. And that right now is, is the, the type of treatment, the type of science and advances that is, is kind of exploding. It's incredibly exciting right now to think about immunotherapy because patients that historically could not be cured or were not cured are all of a sudden having these incredibly favorable outcomes that we've never seen before. So when immunotherapies work, they can really work. Um, it's a very logical approach to take because again, you're using your body's native system to fight the cancer cells off. It's also associated with different side effects than traditional chemotherapy. The side effects are all related to revving up one's immune system. So it might be related to fevers or it might be related to other very different type of side effects that we don't usually see with traditional chemotherapy drugs. Now within your own area of expertise, gynecologic cancers, how are you applying immunotherapy with your patients? So immunotherapy in gynecologic cancer has a really strong, important role. For example, women who have uterine cancer, um, those types of tumors have some of the most prevalent genetic changes in cancers themselves, meaning that if you sampled a, a woman's uterine cancer, there's more mutations in that tumor than almost any other type of cancer. And so the more mutations there are, the more chance it is that the immune system can fight against that. More so targets for that's it. correct. So more targets for the immune system. So we use immunotherapy for women with this specific type of cancer and seeing some great results. So and and I don't know if you keep this type of record, but what percentage of your patients do you think now do you treat with immunotherapy? It's estimated that about a third of women who have uterine cancer have a specific marker that would make them susceptible to immunotherapy. But just recently, the federal government has actually allocated immunotherapy for almost every type of woman whose uterine cancer has come back after standard treatment. So it's going to be an increasing population. And I think this is true for many other cancers, not just gynecologic cancers, that we're finding more and more opportunity to utilize immunotherapy. So it's going to, within 5, 10, 20 years, it's going to be almost for everyone. I would imagine that it's going to increase to that point, And we're already seeing an enormous uptick in the use of immunotherapy and great results. Uh, now, we've already heard or I've heard of the, of the CAR T-cell therapy, which is, I'm, I believe, is some sort of advanced type of immunotherapy. What, what exactly is CAR T-cell therapy? So without getting into too much of the science, our immune systems are made up of B-cells and T-cells. 
So T cells are some specific cancer-fighting cells potentially. And so this is the idea where you basically take somebody's T cells out of their body through their blood, and you take them to a laboratory where those cancer-fighting T cells are grown or expanded, and then they're given back to the patient. So it's saying that in this specific patient's cancer, we know that these specific T cells are going to be fighting most effectively. We're going to increase that population of T cells in a lab and then give them right back again for the best results. And this is also this treatment that has remarkably impacted the outcomes of our cancer patients. And and in one of our recent podcasts, Bill Farr said that the first breast cancer patient to go through T-cell had, had recently happened. So it's spreading to all kinds of different treatments for different kinds of cancers. This started in blood cancers. And the first indications, meaning that the, the federal government recognized that this was the first disease that you should treat immunotherapy with CAR-T is blood cancers. There is going to be, there are increasing number of types of indications and a lot of clinical trials that are ongoing looking at CAR-T and a lot of solid tumors as well. Have we gotten to gynecologic cancers yet for CAR-T cell? We are involved in clinical trials in gynecologic cancers as well as with most other solid tumors. So I think we're going to see a lot of impressive results coming out in the near future. Okay. It's a, it's amazing that technology. Um, let's talk a little bit about prevention because the best way to cure cancer is, is to never get it. And you talked about, we talked a little bit about that before, but smoking is, is commonly considered the most common cause of cancer. How does smoking a cigarette or, or tobacco, how does that cause lung cancer? Yeah, I would start by saying that I entirely agree with your comment that the best type of cancer to get is one that you never have. And so the more that we can focus on opportunities for prevention, uh, the better that we're going to be able to you know, solve this cancer problem and try to achieve our goal of a cancer-free world. Smoking, as you said, is the most common cause of environmental cause of cancer. Um, smoking has a lot of carcinogens in it. And so there's a variety of chemicals that are in it, tobacco smoke in and of itself, um, can affect the DNA, as we talked about before, the genes that can cause breaks or damage. And damaged genes don't grow normally. They can grow into cancers, and they can cause problems down the line as well. Okay. And so don't smoke. <laughs> don't smoke is a great opportunity first. Um, and what's really interesting about smoking as well, Steve, is that people think about smoking causing lung cancer, period. Uh, because it's inhaled in the lungs. But there's a lot of other cancers that are at a much higher rate because of smoking as well. There's head and neck cancers, there's mouth cancers. And again, in women, cervical cancer is um, at least in some part attributable to smoking because those carcinogens in tobacco concentrate in the cervix itself. Oh, I did not know that. So it's not just lung cancer, it's everywhere. It's wow. a lot of different cancers. How about the impact of chemicals in the environment, chemicals in the workplace and in water sources? There have been a lot of associations between certain chemicals and the development of cancer. And so you hear about lawsuits against DuPont, um, a chemical company that makes Teflon. And some of the components of Teflon have been associated with the development of cancer in populations downstream from the plant. And so that's a really strong example um, of this relationship between chemicals and cancers. But there are major things that we can and should control to decrease our chance of cancer. Well, that leads me to my next question and the importance of, of a healthy lifestyle in terms of obviously not smoking. So one of the most important things we can do is to maintain a healthy lifestyle. So um, exercising is great for our cardiovascular fitness and can also help with our weight as well. 
but diet is one of the key components to try to get us to a normal weight. We know that men and women that are obese have a much higher chance of both cancer developing, but also if they develop cancer, there's a higher chance of reoccurrence of most cancers in an obese population. So that's a very strong argument for trying to maintain a normal weight as much as possible. And that's hard in this modern day and age where you're at a desk, you're rushing around, you don't have time to cook. It's, it's, it's a challenge. I would say that it is rare to find somebody that doesn't struggle at some level with trying to maintain a healthy lifestyle. It's a commitment that we all need to make. It's almost like a societal change that we need to do to, to put more importance and education about that. Well, this is certainly a pitch for wellness, uh, wellness in the workplace, wellness at home, yeah. whatever we can do to maintain a good, healthy lifestyle, a good, positive outlook. Um, and, you know, from a mental health standpoint, I think all of these factors together contribute to um, a stronger effort to try to maintain a, a normal weight, too. Okay. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in a short amount of time. So, so thank you. <laughs> it's my pleasure, Steve. It's great to talk about this. And again, uh, cancer prevention, cancer detection, and cancer treatment are really key. And they all add up to continue to reduce the, uh, the death rate from cancer. And that's obviously our ultimate goal to create that cancer-free world. Okay. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.